0: This virus responds to policy decisions because humans change their behavior depending on policy decisions. This virus follows policy. We know that. We just have to use the right policies in the right combination. And right now we're on a better track than we had been.
1: Policy is never one thing where it's it's hard and fast and it should be and will be all It should be used to create some sort of parameters based on the information that's available. And you change it when new information becomes available. You update it. We get
2: smarter and policy gets smarter. Take a step back and understand that this is a dilemma. We often talk about leadership as solving problems and problems have a solution. But the alternative is a dilemma where dilemmas don't get fixed. They get managed. And you have to have a good understanding of what it is that you value so you can make the trade-off when you do a dilemma.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. In the midst of one of our hottest summers ever, Arizona's new confirmed COVID-19 case rate is starting to cool off. But as we should all know by now, Actions and decisions today don't become measurable numbers for weeks. It's important to look back at what we're learning, look ahead using that knowledge, and think carefully about the challenges we face together. You're gonna hear a lot of that processing of data, knowledge, and new opportunities in this week's compelling COVID-19 Roundtable Conversation, one that we will top off with some emergent hope about testing. We'll get to our guests in just a moment, but first, your weekly reminder. Don't stop being smart when it comes to COVID-19 stay at home as much as you possibly can, wash up, mask up, maintain physical distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. If we want continued lower numbers two to four weeks from now, our actions today make that difference. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk about the data, policy making, the importance of getting your flu shot, the great school reopening dilemma, coming bar and nightclub reopening decisions, vaccines, and new hope for faster, cheaper testing. In other words, it's time to talk about what life with COVID-19 looks like as of August 18, 2020. We are back again with another Coronavirus Roundtable. Joining us as always, Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you? Howdy, happy mid-August. Happy mid-August to you. And also with us today, Mr. Marcus Johnson.
1: Hi, everyone. Good to be here.
3: Glad to have you. And joining us again for the second week in a row, Dr. Nick Vasquez. How are you, sir?
2: Great. I'm glad to be here.
3: Well, Humble, there was a time when we thought 2,500 confirmed cases a day was bad. Then there was a time when we were really concerned because we had like 5,500 cases a day. Now we're under 1,000. Are we out of the woods?
0: No, we're not out of the woods, but things have been getting better for the last month. Why? Policy decisions. That's why. This virus responds to policy decisions because humans change their behavior depending on policy decisions. This virus follows policy. We know that. We just have to use the right policies in the right combination. And right now we're on a better track than we had been. But we might not be staying there for long because bars and nightclubs. If you look at the criteria that the state health department put out about when bars and nightclubs can open back up, Right after Labor Day, I can see bars and nightclubs opening back up again. Just looking at the trajectory of the percent positives, case rate is what they also used in those criteria. Basically, it's the same criteria they're using for schools. And because the metrics are going in the right direction, there will be a point at which the bars and nightclubs open back up. Then the question becomes, how do they open back up? Is it a free-for-all like it was, or... Will there actually be some compliance and enforcement provisions in place to keep those business owners on track with doing the right thing? Without any kind of compliance or enforcement with some skin in the game, then it's just human nature. Behavior devolves to the least common denominator. We tried it once. I hope we learn our lesson and we have better compliance and enforcement this time when they open back up. Marcus, here we are.
3: Case rates in the hundreds per day, upper hundreds admittedly, and three major universities are returning back to classes in some way, shape, or form. Will already alluded to the notion that things are going to start reopening up again and things might get accelerated in terms of new case rates. At what point do we look at somebody like Will and say, that guy just wants to incite concern and fear where there isn't any?
1: I don't know that we get to that point. I think the more important question is If we are going to be reopening, at what point do we know that we need to start ratcheting things back down? If we do open up schools, and if we open up bars at the same time or a little bit after schools reopen, when do we know whether or not this is still working? Or when do we know that we can't have these two things going on simultaneously? We can't have schools open and bars and nightclubs open. We need to reinstitute some of the restrictions we had before. I think there's hope there. I think that the guidance that the state has put out, I think that the guidance that at least Maricopa County has put out, they're trying to break this up into different risk categories, minimal, moderate, or high risk, or substantial risk. And there's criteria there. Now, the biggest question is, to what degree will that criteria actually dictate the actions of schools, the actions of bars, the actions of people? These aren't requirements that have been put out, they're guidance. If we lift them up substantially enough, I think this will work. But if we just have them on paper and we don't continue to point to them as a roadmap, then we could be in trouble in the future.
0: I think you're right. What happened last time, though? is the policymakers didn't look at the dashboard. The dashboard being all those data indicators because they were tracking precisely what ASU Biodesign models had been saying would happen if you came out of that stay-at-home order and went straight to phase three, which we called it phase one, but it was really phase three. The policies were phase three. Their model predicted exactly what was going to happen. And in early June, it was all going exponential. The governor didn't react with any kind of policy changes until the very end of June. And that's where all the exponential growth happened. I hope that he's learned his lesson. And state government makes different choices next time they start to see indicators going awry. I hope they've also recognized... The value of predictive modeling and showing in a real descriptive way what the consequences of various policy options are, that's what they're good for. It's not just like a weather forecast to show you what's going to happen tonight. It shows you if you make these combinations of policy decisions, this is what you can expect to have happen. If you make another choice, this is what you can expect to have happen. The ASU Biodesign folks did a tremendous job in retrospect looking at what they predicted with various policy decisions and what would happen with the number of cases, they hit the nail right on the head. And hopefully the decision makers will look at those predictive models more carefully before they make decisions.
1: Yeah, and policy is often created based on data, but it's often developed based on public demand and public sentiment. In the past, a lot of the public narrative has been around the number of cases And I think we've started to see a transition a little bit to talking more so about percent positivity, which is a great development. And right now, the red, yellow, green criteria that have been created, whether it be by the state or the county, I've heard it mentioned in the media. I've heard it mentioned in news conferences and press events. But a lot of it is still kind of buried in the nuances of a state health department's website and county health department's websites. We need to do what we can to lift up this red, yellow, green criteria and make sure that it is apparent to the public that the amount of community spread can be categorized like this and that it can be used in order to determine whether or not certain businesses or schools are safe to reopen.
2: You talked about sort of the numbers and are we out of the woods? And I would say it's like a good news, bad news kind of situation. So you've definitely seen lower case growth. There's fewer hospitalized patients, declining percent positivity rate. We're definitely getting better. I attributed to masking and closing down what you might call social low yield areas. I mean, everybody likes to go to a bar and that has an important level of employment for people. But. It's not the same sort of long-term positive effect as enabling a school or college. So the low-yield stuff has kind of been removed. But the bad news is cases are still going up. We had 460-some-odd cases today, which is much better. But that still means we're still going up. And that means mitigation and masking are still needed in the foreseeable future. And eventually, there's going to be a lot of pressure as the story in people's mind changes that, oh, it's getting better, let's reopen. We've done this before. We know what happens when we reopen too quick. There'll still be pressure to do it. But I hope we're able to use the guidelines and stick to our guns. the other part about what's the uncertainty or the bad news in the future is college and schools resuming. If it's a respiratory virus, you can just assume it's going to follow the same pattern that flu does. And if we resume college and schools, you're going to have an increase in cases unless we take some extraordinary measures to prevent those cases from going up.
3: There is this moment that everyone is anticipating, too, which is the fall flu season coinciding with COVID-19. Talk about what your expectations are relative to that.
2: There's what I expect, and then there's the fears. So the fears are one thing, but what I expect is that we saw the flu drop off out of the sky, down to the floor. When we started doing mitigation and masking, the CDC put out some information that said that this is basically the first time we've actually proven that this stuff works. We did mitigation efforts and the flu prevalence just kind of erased. So if we continue the mitigation and the masking and the distancing, we could protect ourselves from a bad flu season. That being said, if we had twin outbreaks of flu and COVID, that would be terrible. We would easily overwhelm the healthcare system. So please,
0: everybody get your flu shots. I agree with him. I think, you know, if people get their influenza vaccine, and I think they will, that's good. What will be terrific is that the mitigation measures, the face coverings, are going to work for influenza too. And we saw it in South America. The interventions are working for influenza as well as COVID-19.
1: I'm in the same boat. When you look at the numbers that have come out of countries in the Southern Hemisphere, seen data from like Chile and from Australia, their flu seasons, which are normally going on right around now, they've been significantly blunted based on COVID-19 measures that they've taken. Is it possible that that same thing happens in the US? Yes. Is it also possible that We get a false sense of security that we're doing extremely well. And so we get back to normal behavior too quickly. That's also a possibility. But I'm more optimistic than pessimistic on this one.
2: We've talked about the flu vaccine. And of course, we've talked about a COVID 19 vaccine, and everybody's waiting and expecting a COVID vaccine to come. But the point that was made that I think is, is vital is that we don't need a vaccine so much as we need vaccinations. I can't tell you how many people every year just skip the flu shot and say, no, I get the flu every year. So every time I get the flu shot, I'm not gonna do it or I have allergies and all these resistance to getting the flu shot. I think we're gonna pass along to the COVID vaccine. You don't need a vaccine, you need these vaccinations. We have to have some sort of trusted way to convince people or to invite people back to the healthcare system where they feel safe to come. And then number two, that they'll get their shots. I mean, pediatric vaccinations are down. Flu vaccinations, I fear, are going to be a lower number. And then if we get the COVID vaccine, say, in early 2021, half the population decides I'm not going to get it similar to the flu shot every year. We're kind of in a pickle and the vaccine doesn't help us at all.
0: There's two things on vaccines I'd like to talk about. Let us just touch on this one first. It might be okay that we have some resistant people at first because we're not going to have 320 million doses available all at once. It's probably going to come out at like 2 million doses a week or something like that. And so there won't nearly be enough vaccine to go around, especially at the beginning And so when I've had interviews with journalists and stuff, they say, what about all these people that are vaccine hesitant and don't want the vaccine? What do we need to do to convince them? And I say, well, just tell them to go to the back of the line and let the people that want the vaccine get it first, because there won't be enough vaccine available at the beginning. Later on, once the early adapters, the people that want the vaccine are able to get the vaccine, then these vaccine hesitancy people will be in a risk pool of people who will still be getting COVID. And perhaps they'll come around at some point which leads me to the second thing i think we need to come up with a prioritization plan now for where those early doses are going to go and why so that we have thought about health equity and vulnerable populations in arizona specifically if we don't have an arizona plan that looks at health equity and vulnerable populations that will be stuck with a federal plan That's going to vaccinate the Border Patrol first. If you're prepared in Arizona with this is what we're going to do for prioritizing those early doses of vaccine when they come in and we're prepared, then we're something to punch back with if the feds come back with a crappy plan. So that's why we need to get that plan started now so that we can have a public discussion. The point was made earlier that policy is not
3: just done by policymakers. It's done by public Will by public yeah. discussion, public demand, taking all those things into account. What is the priority for vaccination?
0: I will start with long term care facility staff and residents, frontline healthcare workers like ED docs, people in the healthcare system, people that were in the clinical trials and got the placebo. They should get some of the early benefits of participating in those trials. So those are some of the early populations that I think ought to go first is go after those high risk populations that are at risk of entering the hospital system and also the people that interact and treat people with COVID-19. Those are some of the higher priority people. What CDC came out with none of them considered health equity. The first one was homeland security. So that told me okay so then it's cops and border patrols ahead of the people in the nursing home and the healthcare care workers.
1: You also would fold in populations that are in prisons right now. You need to also fold in individuals and families that are on tribal lands that don't have access to basic things like water to wash your hands with. If we don't put that down on paper, if we don't put our foot down about that, I think you're right, Will, that this is going to go to whatever the federal government deems
2: most critical. And, of course, sports teams. They're able to get what they need at the moment. There really isn't very much leadership as far as a well-coordinated plan. The whole approach to managing this pandemic has been to kick the, the decisions down a level and to say, we're here to support you, but you make the tough decisions. And that's sort of been passed down from, you know, governorships to counties, counties to school boards school boards to individual parents. If you follow the same path with vaccinations, you'll get to the second part of this problem of the managing the pandemic, which is this has become a disease of the marginalized. The people with political power are the ones who are able to shout the loudest, and they're the ones who are able to move the bureaucracy. And those without political power or somehow economically marginalized are not in the consideration. They're not on the line. Um, And I cannot object to that more. It just seems antithetical to everything that I get up for every day.
3: Nick brought it up. He snuck it in there. He said school boards and teachers and parents. Let's talk about schools. Will, you were the first to say that it makes sense for the state government to provide guidance and for districts to make decisions. Now we have a semi-chaotic situation where some schools are trying to do some things and even their own teachers don't agree with that and are showing that by not even showing up, by calling in sick, by saying they're not going to come and teach. How do we work our way out of this pickle that we're in right now, where everybody's sort of confused and, quite frankly,
0: at each other's throats? Just speaking for me, I'm okay with the way it's set up. There's some benchmarks in place that make sense. I believe in the benchmarks. I think they're good ones. My attitude is that the people that ran for these governing board positions in the school districts, they were elected to make decisions about the school. And this is a school decision. And so there's an element of democracy to this where you don't think that when you're running for the governing board for a school district that you're going to be making this level of decision. But guess what? You signed up for it. And they're responsible to the people of that school district. They answer to that question. Public, so they're answering to somebody. So I'm okay with the school districts making those decisions. I might always agree with it. Like Queen Creek said, they're on the kind of a border of Pinal and Pima County, so they have kind of two metrics to take a look at, I think. But neither of those counties meet the benchmarks, and they decided to open up anyway, and they are held accountable by the people that voted for them in those elections.
3: Marcus, one of the arguments that has come up about schools being open, and and is a big part of the governor's order related to schools reopening, on August 17th, there needs to be some place for kids to go who need a place to go, who need a place to get a meal, who need a place to essentially go while their parents go to work. What about the social determinants aspects of school plays into the decision, and how do you balance that with public health?
1: These are real trade-offs that need to be considered. We often think of going back to school in the context of going back to get an education, which is in and of itself an extremely important social determinant of health. And we're seeing the gap between families that are able to do distance learning versus those who aren't able to do distance learning. That's going to continue to grow that inequity. If you're a family that can't afford enough laptops for the number of children that you have or enough tablets so that you can actually do distance learning, then learning is just not going to take place to the extent that it needs to. But that also has to be balanced with, yes, the public health aspects of potentially contracting COVID-19 within schools amongst kids. It has to consider balancing contracting COVID-19 amongst the staff in the school and spreading it potentially to family members outside of the school. And then you also have to consider the economic impacts. We've seen unemployment rates skyrocket over the past handful of months. Long story short, obviously, the social determinants of health is a critical aspect of this, and we can't just look at the traditional health metrics being the ones that we only weigh.
3: Nick, we've already seen in other states, schools reopen, the picture gets posted on social media of kids crowding the halls without any masks on, and then the news item comes out that the entire school is quarantined. At what point will you get sick of saying, I told you so?
2: I try not to say I told you so because it doesn't necessarily help anything. I'm going to sound a a different note on schools because it's a very difficult decision. There are harms either way. If you close a school, it's clearly much safer for people to do distancing and, and staying at home and do your classwork online. But if you've got a second grader or an eighth grader who's missing classmates, the social pressures are kind of tough because they're isolated and at home. Or, you know, if you have the equity issues of nobody's got enough internet or they don't have a device, there are definitely harms. And as long as we have this pandemic, we're going to be forced into distance learning of some type. And it's going to have a negative impact, not on rich or well-to-do families, but on poor families and specifically really much more like black or brown families, just because poverty is so much more prevalent in minorities. McKinsey put out a report not too long ago that tried to estimate how much skills would be lost by kids doing distance learning and what that would translate into competitiveness on their part for the job market and then the U.S. competitiveness. Just by having kids out of physical school until in their report estimated till January 2021 that the negative impact would put some kids behind by a year and would decrease U.S. GDP by almost 1% by 2040, And that's if we go back to in-person learning January 2021. It's a very difficult decision that I wish our elected officials would take a step back and understand that this is a dilemma. We often talk about leadership as solving problems and problems have a solution. But the alternative is a dilemma where dilemmas don't get fixed. They get managed. And you have to have a good understanding of what it is that you value so you can make the trade-off when you do a dilemma. The dilemma we have is how do we get kids back to school safely? Because we could get them back to school now if everyone was tolerant of the fact that some teachers and some kids would get very sick and some would die. If we tolerated that, we would do that. We tolerate people driving on their own, drunk sometimes, even though we make it a law. We say it's your personal responsibility, and we tolerate the loss of life. We go, man, that's life. We as a society are all right with that. If we were okay with that loss of life, we could reopen schools, but we're not. Kids are a separate thing. I'm not tolerant of that for my kid. But I can see that when my kid is doing online learning, it's just different quality. If we do this for a year, I really fear for the education gap going forward, knowing that education right now in the U.S. is the ticket to a much better life, not riches, but at least stable employment. It's a very difficult dilemma for us to solve that I wish people would say and acknowledge this is a dilemma. We need a broad thinking to think about how we enable school districts who have been deinvested in forever to manage this pandemic. And how do we enable them without saying, hey, I'm going to punt. OK, here's my recommendations-ish. Here's my rough guidelines. Tell me what you're going to do. That's largely been the mess to school boards and to principals around the state. Here's some guidelines. Here's some what's safest. If you look at the Maricopa County guideline for what's safest, it's staying at home. All the stuff is green: Stay at home, stay at home, stay at home, work at a distance. How are you going to do that if you're in Pinal? How do you do that if you're in Navajo? how do you do these things? It's not enough just to say, well, here's a rough guideline to m- say it's safe. You, you got to think about the potential consequences. And then what does that mean? And how do we manage those things instead of good luck?
3: It really does seem like a multi-layered dilemma because some kids are commuting 30 minutes to two hours to school every day on a congregate bus. And then you hear teachers pushing back and saying, even if I got 12 people in the room instead of 30, we're all separated by plexiglass and I can't do one-on-one teaching the way I know how to do it to be effective and to reach that child. Are we lacking in creativity or are we truly facing some really incredibly high barriers to being safe and providing instruction?
0: I don't have an answer for that. I think it's okay for governing boards to make these decisions. They're at the local level. They're the ones that their superintendent reports to them, the infrastructure, the teachers, the students, the parents. They can go to those meetings and have it out. That's democracy. If a governor makes a decision, how are you going to have it out? If it's a governing board, you can have it out. That's okay.
3: And I just got to give a shout out to Cottonwood Oak Creek School District, Superintendent Steve King. I don't even know how many tens of thousands of meals have been delivered, how many times he's reached out to families how many times they've figured out how to get laptops and tablets to kids so that they can do distance learning. There are ways to mitigate, if not fend off the loss of capacity to learn
0: and to be well. I think it's about mitigation. You're never gonna get to zero risk with this virus. When you go into in-person instruction, you're not going to get to pre-pandemic opportunities to get instruction, but you can get closer. And that's the trade-off. And Nick was talking about that. It's the dilemma. You're balancing the benefits of in-person school instruction, even though it might not be the full benefit the way it was pre-pandemic, with the risks of the virus spreading. There's no hard and fast answer. Everyone agrees that there's benefits for in-person instruction. The difference is that not everyone agrees on that balance between benefit and risk. And where should that be decided? I think at the governing board meeting. Marcus, in fairness to our elected officials,
3: anyone would agree that nobody truly knows how this new virus operates until at least two years from now when there's enough data. Given that, how do we find a way to muddle through when we really don't have the statistics? For example, there are a lot of people hypothesizing now and Dr. Shaw, who normally joins us, says the same thing, that this virus is going to run out of fuel and that herd immunity isn't exactly what we think it is. It might actually be a lower percentage of the population exposed, but we really don't know. So how is it that policy gets formulated when we really don't know?
1: You take your best guess, you use the information that's in front of you to the best extent that you can, and you make policy and you update policy based on new information that is made available. Based on new factual information that's made available, policy is never one thing where it's it's hard and fast, and it should be end all be all. It should be used to create some sort of parameters based on the information that's available. And you change it when new information becomes available. You update it. We get smarter and policy gets smarter. I know we're putting a lot of emphasis on policymaking and on the authority of the policymakers. But I do also want to touch on the fact that sending kids back to school, yes, there are policies that are going to determine whether or not schools are open or closed and to what extent. But It's also incumbent on parents to be able to decide when they want to send their kids back to school. If you are in a position where you're going back to work as a parent and If you're in a position where the school is open, you can use the benchmarks, the criteria that have been created to try to determine whether or not it's safe for your kids to go back to school. And I think that that's one of the really good pieces of these benchmarks that have been created is that we don't have to just be kind of shooting from the hip anymore. We can look at them and say, listen, school board or parents, if we're under a 5% positivity rate, then it's probably somewhat safe to send our kids back to school. If we are above 5% positivity but below 10%, we're gonna do some sort of a combination of online learning and in-person learning. But if things are above 10% positivity for a community spread, then it's not safe for us to go back. And I know that that might sound like kind of a coming from a position of privilege, but these benchmarks, this guidance is out there. Yes, to help school officials and elected officials determine when to open schools, but it can also be helpful for parents to understand when is it safe and when is it not safe to send our kids back to school?
0: And don't forget the mitigation plan. Part of the equation is what we're talking about, the, you know, the percentage positive and all that kind of stuff for the community. But then the other part of it is, what is your plan in the school? Like, what are you going to do? What's your policy for masks on the playground? How are you going to do lunchtime? How are you going to set the schedule to minimize the mixing? That's the other part of it. It's the metrics, but it's the operational plan the mitigation plan that you have in place, and can you pull it off? So a plan's a plan's a plan, but it doesn't mean anything until you're actually doing it. So I think it's good for schools to have a reasonable plan that's pretty good that they can actually pull off. That's better than having a super robust plan that's bulletproof that teachers can't implement.
2: Yeah, I think what's going on right now with the schools, especially with the teachers, is that you have this weird phenomenon that the parents and the kids aren't the target of the messaging. The administration, the school boards, who's ever running whatever school, they have one constituency they need to convince that they've got a plan and they've got their best effort to engender trust, and that's the teachers. Teachers have to feel safe to show up. I can tell you when we started this in February or March in medicine, there were a number of doctors who wondered out loud, is it time for me to retire? Debated whether or not it's time to leave. If the teachers are asking the very same question, and I think it's clear that they are, the lack of this sort of like demonstrable plan. Look, here's what the plan is. It's not perfect. We'll do better as we know better. But here's our best effort to try to keep you and the kids safe. Because all the messaging is about how to keep the kids safe. If you're not talking internally to the staff that work there, like nursing homes or schools, whoever works there, those people who feel like their lives are at risk, I don't care what your plan is. Unless you convince those people to come back, you don't have a school. Just look at some of the experience that people are having with the online learning. The number of teachers that are willing to do that or online learning. The classrooms were already 1 to 35 as far as student-to-teacher ratios. All you need is 20% of your teachers to decide that it's not worth it to them. And you've got one to 50 in a class. This is a real problem that needs to be addressed. If you're ever going to be able to say, okay, we socially distance in the class, and kept these kids apart. How do you do that with 35
0: kids? Another you know. reason to let the governing board decide. Because, because of the capacity to locally analyze the situation. Yeah, Because of what Nick was just saying. Yeah. That you got to talk to your staff. It's not just the superintendent. It's the teachers. It's the parents. It's the kids. That's why I think it's better for the governing board to make these decisions. They can't just cop out and say, well, the governor said this or the governor said that. They actually have to have that debate. And they should, as you said, Nick. Queen Creek should have, before they said that they were going to open for in-person instruction ahead of the benchmark being met, they should have had that conversation and be assured by their superintendent that they had the teachers on board with that. But obviously that's not what happened. I think other districts are going to learn from what happened at Queen Creek and maybe they'll think through whether or not they fully understand the position that their teachers and parents and kids, what their positions are before they start. But there's other districts, I think, place in the White Mountains, it decided they were going to open before the benchmarks were ready. And they're open. And so they pulled it off. At least that's the last I heard.
2: For now.
0: For now. So it's okay. There's a lot of people that say, oh, the governor copped out. I disagree. I think it's good to let them make these decisions.
3: There's one more aspect of living with COVID that is gaining more and more attention again. It was something that was brought up early on in the pandemic, that if we could just get testing right, if we could just get enough tests, we could actually resume some sense of normalcy. Now that we're further along in the pandemic and we're seeing saliva testing and protocols that could get rapid results, that call is being raised again. For enough money to be raised For enough emergency use authorization policy to get people tested like every day or once a week. Is there any practical reason to be going after this goal or is it too late or is it too pie in the sky?
1: I think it's something to really celebrate the fact that these emergency youth authorizations are going into effect. This week we heard about the saliva test that's coming out of Yale where it's not just the test that's being authorized, it's actually the protocol that's being authorized. I use like a food metaphor for this. Like when you go to get takeout or you go to a restaurant, the cake that you buy at their restaurant, you know, you're going to pay anywhere from six to 10 bucks for a slice of cake. It's pretty expensive. But if you buy the ingredients on your own or you make cake at home with the ingredients you have at the house, it's a lot cheaper. Usually less time than driving and sitting down at a restaurant than driving back. It's the same thing with what's being created at Yale. They're authorizing the recipe to be able to conduct these tests. So it's not just the cake. It's it's going to be cheaper. It's supposed to be more readily available. And it's faster to actually get the results back. They're showing that they can get results back from the saliva test within a matter of hours. Yale suggests that the cost should be no more than $10 per sample. So it's feasible, so long as the supply chains hold up, which they're supposed to, that this protocol becomes a lot more widespread, and people are able to do these less invasive tests, get the results back quickly, and make decisions that they once weren't able to make until 10 to 14 days later when they got their samples back. So I'm really optimistic about this.
3: Nick, you've certainly spent weeks and weeks railing at the idea that Folks walk into the emergency room and you don't even bother to test them because you know the results aren't coming for 10 to 14 days. So do you like a future that includes rapid saliva testing? I do,
2: low sensitivity, but cheap. So you could widely distribute it. One of the perfect worlds where you reopen schools is everybody spits into a cup once a week. Then you can extrapolate your positivity rate from there and understand how you're doing. You just need much broader testing if you wanna resume any sort of normal activity. And I think the benefit from schools is so high That it's worth the risk. And if you can back people up and say, we're going to test everybody once a week or twice a week with this spit test, I think that's a way you can go back to normal.
1: We're not going to be getting close to any sort of critical mass with a vaccine until spring, summertime of next year, maybe. So between now and whenever that critical mass is met for vaccinations, this is a pretty good stepping stone.
3: Well, we've seen wartime economy kick in and do amazing things in terms of production. Why not a massive amount of production to get rapid testing?
0: Well, I think we're on the right track with you. You just talked about that Yale test because it's less invasive. It's convenient and it sounds affordable, especially if federal government pitches in to buy those kits. It gives you actionable information on those test kits. Do you read it right there or do you have to send it off somewhere?
1: I know that it's not a kit it is a process. It's the recipe, not the cake. And the recipe is using equipment and different reagents that are already readily available in most doctor's offices and lab facilities. So I don't think it's an actual specific test type. So that makes it a lot cheaper as opposed to having to have a nasal swab, some other sort of fancy reagent, a preservative for the nasopharyngeal test.
0: Yeah, Can you do a pool test?
1: Yeah, Yeah. you could do pool tests with it too. Now, what I don't know how this compares to ASUs, I know that ASU has also ramped up production of their saliva tests. That's obviously a huge benefit. But what they're saying about this saliva direct test out of Yale is that it is much cheaper. Actually, the sensitivity is somewhere around 94, 95%. So not as high as traditional nasopharyngeal PCR tests but still extremely high, and that within the next couple of months, they really hope to ramp up production throughout the United States. These are based off of a handful of articles that I've read over the past few days, but it seems like a really promising development.
2: I'm hopeful because it's nice to have alternative testing that's cheaper, that doesn't have the same bottlenecks. I'm a little jaundiced that so far the federal government has largely let the market take care of this pandemic. And I would be surprised if there was a large outlay of money to produce this test and then distribute it with equitable thinking towards the enabling of schools. That's not been the process by which we've made decisions so far. Well, with the yeah. vaccine we have. With the vaccine so far, it's been more vaccine nationalism. Like, hey, we want our spot in line.
0: Yeah, that's right.
2: We want to make sure we get it first. So here's some money. Here's a couple billion dollars, but we want ours first.
0: Yeah, you're right Uh, about that. Yeah.
2: Yale is saying that they're making this open source.
1: So Gall, in order to make these tests work, isn't proprietary to Yale. It's going to be available to anybody that can do it. So, yes, maybe it seems Pollyannish, but based on all the readings, based on all the news that's come out, it seems like hopefully some of the financial incentives that exist in the vaccine world are actually being removed from this
2: process. I'm going to go out on a limb and make a vaccine proclamation for you. If and when we have an actual vaccine that works, I can absolutely see Bill Gates buying it and giving it for free. I just got that feeling like that's a possibility.
1: We need to stop advocating to the government and start chatting with Bill.
3: Thank you, Will. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Marcus. And maybe someday thank you, Bill Gates. Who knows? But there are key takeaways from today's discussion that we do know. Number one, decision-making in Arizona right now is local. So let's curb the urge to carp and let's engage with each other thoughtfully using the knowledge and experience we all now have to solve problems and manage dilemmas. Number two, make sure that the flu season doesn't make 2020 any worse than it already is for our health. Get your flu shot. Keep masking up. Number three, stay COVID smart. Wash up, Mask up, physically distance whenever you can, and keep a heads up for each other out there. It's a marathon, not a sprint. By being in this together, we'll get out of this together. Our COVID-19 roundtable will be back in two weeks, but the podcast itself will be back next week with yet another conversation on health and well-being in Arizona. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes, especially last week's Census 2020 update. We only have a handful of weeks before the census count deadline of September 30th and Arizona simply cannot afford to be undercounted like it was in 2010. One or two new congressional seats depend on an accurate count, as do billions of federal dollars over the coming decade. Check in with friends, family, and acquaintances. Help everyone living in Arizona get counted. Beyond that, we've got a terrific and insightful LGBTQ communities conversation that you've got to hear. And as one of our hottest summers continues, we've got a great two-part series on heat and climate change. Plus, episodes on food, affordable housing, first responders, and the art and practice of storytelling. In other words, the Vitalist Spark has got you covered with great guests, insightful content, and probably one or two bad jokes. There's so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our more than 40 episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, Or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.